Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and Kyle introduce each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of October 2020, which means it is Kyle's Killer October. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a special event that we've been doing for the past couple of years now. And uh, basically what that means is Kyle has had creative control of catching up on cinema, and he's been subjecting the two of us to a variety of horror films. Uh, Kyle's making a a little bit of a grimace here as he (laughs) had to bow out of last week's episode, being as he had some real-life shit going on. Um, But he's back. Uh, So this week, Kyle, uh, what do you got for us this week for the finale of Kyle's Killer October? I've got a Lars von Trier can of pickled herring uh, (laughs) uh, by the name of Antichrist from 2009. Uh, Despite its title, it has nothing to do with uh, Christ (laughs) or even religion at that point. Um, Yeah, this is a a director that I've been trying to get Trevor to to watch something of his for a while. I actually had him watch his debut film, uh, The Element of Crime, just to kind of like get a sense of what von Trier's capable of before he jumped into this one, Antichrist. Uh, just real quick, could you just tell the difference between how the two were shot? I think this was shot, I think most of his contemporary stuff, is is it shot on digital? Uh, yes, it has a it has a digital sheen to it in mm. that there's a lot of uh, like motion blur that I don't think you get often from, from actual like 35mm film. Um, and it's also largely handheld. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very much. That is. Um, a lot yeah, of his contemporary films are handheld. From a cinematographic standpoint, uh, very, very different looking films, very mm-hmm. different feeling films in some ways too, but uh, I'm really thankful that you, you gave me the beginning of his filmography and you know something a little further deeper in because, um, like you said, this was my introduction to not just to this film, um, which you know very well. In fact, you own it on the Criterion Collection. Um, but for me, this was an introduction to the director and his body of work. Um, Lars von Trier is one of those guys that um, I don't know what it is about my particular taste in film, but there's certain directors that I know them by reputation, but mm-hmm. I don't I don't really seek them out. I just kind of admire their their oeuvre from afar. Like Lars von Trier is one of them, and then there's like Gaspar uh, Noé, mm-hmm. and then like Jim Jarmusch. These are these are big fancy names that hold a lot of meaning like you throw them out there at a cocktail party people are going to go, oh yeah yeah so i'm familiar <laughs> um but for me it's like i've never seen their work so i'm not about to pretend i know anything about them <laughs> uh yeah so i think that with the var with the lars von trier movie past 1992 uh there should be a disclaimer and it should be that guy from 300 that's like you will not enjoy this this will not be over soon <laughs> like this is going to be bumpy uh, and I've seen some, like one of his more contemporary films, and I really want to see the rest of this. I think it's called the Depression Trilogy, which is this Melancholia, and then Nymphomaniac One and Two. Nymphomania is it Nymphomania or Nymphomaniac? Maniac. Maniac. Um, yeah. So I've wanted to finish those, but I have seen his most recent film, which is The House That Jack Built, which is is a is an experience. <laughs> it's crazy long. Uh, but it is it is worth your time if you're a Von Trier fan. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm super excited to talk about this one in particular because this one uh, this was the third I think this was the third Von Trier film that I'd seen. I'd seen Element of Crime and then Europa, which is not my favorite. Um, I think visually you might enjoy that one as well, but I I wouldn't have you watch it for any reason. But this one 
I like a good abstract experience in my indie films and my art house. And I think this isn't the most abstract that we've dealt with, but I think that after covering We Are the Flesh, this should be much easier to uh, <laughs> to come to. Yes, um, We Are the Flesh. Uh, that was that was seriously experimental mm-hmm. um, in in a lot of aspects. I, there was quite a bit of that that was just kind of hanging out there that I was kind of grasping at straws trying to grasp the significance of it. I certainly felt quite a bit watching that, but I feel like um, we theorized a lot more than we like concretely identified mm-hmm. with a lot of the themes in that. But I think the official like classification for genre for Antichrist is. Uh, experimental psychological horror, um, which seems accurate. Um, but yeah, this is this is a, a very challenging film. It's very rich, um, but on the whole, I I think I got a lot out of it. I think I really enjoyed it, despite you know the disclaimer that when you handed it off to me, you're like, <laughs> get ready, strap yourself in, it's going to get rough. <laughs> and he's he's a filmmaker that makes uses makes use of all kinds of ways to. He's a, he's a person who is divisive. Like he is going to bug you. He is going to annoy you with his films. Not all of them. There's a certain lane that he has, and this is definitely that lane. Like this isn't going to be for you probably. And even if you are wanting to see this film you're probably going to be frustrated at times and not for the reasons that you think one of the things going back for me the second time was uh i was really frustrated with i I guess because i know what happens like there's some lulls in the film and going through the second time i'm like okay let's kind of speed this up uh one of the thing one of the frustrations i had the first time around was actually charlotte gainsbourg's performance now not that it's bad her performance is it is it is fantastic. I think that they both do an excellent job in this film, uh, her especially. But I had a lot of trouble understanding what she was saying, and that was very that was very frustrating for me because she was very mumbly and it was very quiet, and even like trying to turn up the volume, like I can barely make out what she's saying. Huh? See, I find that kind of surprising. Um, she's not known to me as an actress. Uh, she was she did a stunning job. I'll mm-hmm. say that much. Um, yes. This was a very uh, this is what critics would call a a bold performance (laughs) um funny enough i I did a fair amount of research on this because i I did not want to come into this blind because lars von trier is one of those names that uh you 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 just don't futz with um (laughs) you you don't come ill prepared to a lars von trier discussion um but yeah uh, from what i read uh, it sounded like ava green um really wanted this role and i can see why because that lady can't keep her clothes on yeah <laughs> i have i have seen all of ava green many a time and i've only we seen like three trouble. of her movies <laughs> um she probably would have done quite well in the role um, if you ask me but uh charlotte gainsburg um as it stands she owns this role um it's a very demanding role and you really do have to be fearless uh, in order to do some of the things she does in this film um but about her voice about the way she speaks um she has a she has a almost like a wispy lilt in her voice mm-hmm. she sounds so utterly fragile at times and then not later on yes um but when she's doing there's quite a bit of narration in this film and actually this got me thinking when i was watching when i was watching antichrist after uh, the element of crime i almost watched them back to back yeah that's a lot <laughs> not a fun time in the trevor household but um what i noticed is like it got me thinking and maybe you can clear this up for me does lars von trier have a thing about voices um because i want to say the lead actor in the element of crime was largely picked because of, his, of his, voice. his speaking voice it, like as a narrator he's incredibly 
like intriguing like he has such a distinct voice and you spend 80% of the movie just with his voice not even with his physical body and same with her like her voice is covering most of the film and there's something about the way she does her line deliveries that it it feels like it's pulled directly from like a storybook or something like she's reading like a, a fairy tale to a child when she's on the train specifically, that was the scene where she's just talking with uh, Willem Dafoe. Uh, yeah, um, he has interesting odes to former directors, and I always like that. I always like like tip tip of the hat to uh, to other directors, and I think I told you about one Igmar Bergman that he had in um, in uh, the house that Jack built. Uh, this one, there's a Tarkovsky nod uh, specifically, and in the element of crime, I feel like there's an Alpha. I think that might be an Alphaville. Uh, not because in Alphaville it's a black and white French film like kind of dystopian future super boring by the way <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's I try I got through it I'm like man that was that was rough wow, you really built that up and yeah. then just knocked it right the fuck down <laughs> but the one of the, the one of the interesting things about that film it might be a cultural thing too I just might not you know, I just might not follow it very well but the I think it's somebody who had like a laryngectomy or something like the person had like lost their voice and they had like the the thing and it's not as it's not like the same ones we have today. It just sounds a little bit different. So the so like the the narration is like this really deep raspy voice, and I, I think maybe element of crime that like having that narration by somebody with that kind of voice like he might have been doing kind of like a this is my ode to Alphaville because I'm sure it's a film he's seen. Okay, they, yeah, that makes sense. But I was just curious if like he if that's a thing with his actors or is narration a thing across his his. It is. It very much is. So, what's his face? Yeah, it might, he might have a thing for voices. Who's the guy that played uh, Hitler in Downfall? I can't think of his name. Um, oh, um, Bruno. Bruno Gans. Bruno Gans is the uh, is the narrator for the house that Jack built. They're actually having like a dialogue throughout the film. Like they're just going back and forth. And Bruno Gans definitely has one of those voices. So yeah, he might just have a thing for like a a voice that's not Anthony Hopkins or Morgan Freeman doing his uh, narration. Uh, yeah, it, it maybe going forward, keep an ear, keep an ear out for that, because mm-hmm. uh, that is something I noticed just in having watched two of his films. And um, yeah, her voice in particular, I didn't have a, I didn't have much trouble understanding it largely because I had subtitles on, which probably came in handy. <laughs> yeah, I thought about doing subtitles this time, but I'm like, I'm like, no, I kind of want to get to the like, what was it that bugged me last time? And it didn't bother me as much this time, but I definitely still was kind of like, eh. I, I understand now why going back. Like, it was hard to understand what she was saying, for me at least. Well, in the future, yeah, I think if I was to watch more of his films, I'd probably turn the subtitles off mm. uh, because his editing style and his handheld cinematography, at least in his later works, uh, it seems like you're supposed to be present uh, yeah. for for everything that's unfolding. And in glancing down at the subtitles, I feel like maybe it robs it of some of its power a little bit. I try to do subtitles only when necessary. I, I usually have them on all the time. It's just a thing that I do. But, you know, for him, maybe in the future I'll turn them off. But uh, that being said, Kyle, uh, do you want to give a pretty basic rundown of the plot for Antichrist? Yeah, so uh, a married couple named him and her, or he and her, uh, they lose their infant son. Uh, he falls out of a window while they're having sex one afternoon. Um, and instead of having her, his wife undergo therapy in a in a facility from what i understand uh he decides to take her home and try to give her therapy on his own because he's a therapist and after that doesn't work they go to, they retreat to a cabin that they visit to try to 
try to deal with this in, um, I guess, just in a different setting. And it doesn't go, it doesn't go as planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a very good summary of, of the plot. Um, of course, the devil is in the details. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what? how do you want to approach I, this? I was like, how the fuck do we even start this? Well, let's start with the beginning, then. Um, uh, I think that the beginning is, rem- like, just the beginning, you could just keep that as a short film. Like, you could just have that on its own as something. You didn't even need the rest of the movie. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I actually felt somewhat robbed um, by the by the visual aesthetic of the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, oh, no. I thought the, I thought we were doing this, and then and then we did something else entirely. And you're right; I I could have taken this prologue just entirely in isolation and been very satisfied with it, to be honest, uh, because uh, the visuals in the sequence, which is in black and white, by the way, um, sumptuous is is the word that comes to mind. Uh, luscious blacks, <laughs> <laughs> dude. When I first started watching this, like you sit down, you're like, all right. I got my tea, I got my coffee, I'm going to sit here and watch it. It's like, holy shit! <laughs> I was not <laughs> expecting that. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to give away the, I don't want to give it away, but I mean, it is a gratuitous sex scene uh, at the beginning of this. And they are knocking, they are doing property damage to this house. <laughs> this is a passionate uh, sesh that they've got going on here. Yeah, uh, this entire sequence, it's uh, he and her uh, having passionate lovemaking uh in the shower on the floor uh, on the roof (laughs) in the basement everywhere uh and yeah there is property damage that is inflicted upon their household um we do see some genitalia we do see penetration oh uh, full penetration in in full frame center frame and yeah uh she's having a grand old time and so is he and by the way he is played by willem dafoe um actually before you ask the question uh this is not willem dafoe's peep his peep this is, uh, I'm assuming, an actor uh, because uh, Willem Dafoe actually has a has a reputation as having a enormous hog. Like he apparently has an enormous penis, um, and apparently Von Trier, according to the IMDb, Von Trier is like his dick's too big and weird looking. We're using somebody else. <laughs> 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 I guess it's just that's not the cut that I'm looking for. But yeah, apparently they had to. Apparently had to edit his penis out of certain shots because it was too powerful. <laughs> MJ and I, we're gonna have a hell of a time. <laughs> oh, he's yeah, he's actually had Kirsten Dunst as a melancholia. She's the main yes, character. Yes, Look at yes. that. Um, yeah, he's not gonna work with Tommy McGuire. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Um, but yeah, uh, this whole sequence, it like I said, shot in black and white. Uh, it's so beautiful to look at, and there's a uh, there's like an aria playing over it that I want to say. Um, they have a reprise of it mm-hmm. during the climax, during the well, the finale of the film, rather. Um, and it's all in super slow motion. I want to say this is like a thousand frames a second or something. This is this is incredibly slow motion. It's so smooth. It looks beautiful. It doesn't look like uh, that ugly, jittery slow motion that you mm-hmm. see when they like didn't plan on showing that in that slow Lord motion. of the Rings slow motion in the yes, first one. Woo-hoo. Exactly. I was actually thinking of Peter Jackson's uh, King oh. Kong, but yes, Lord of the Rings does it too. So maybe that's a thing. My man does not do. know how to do slow motion. I hate that look. Mm-hmm. It cheapens things so badly. Um, yeah, it that... can take the most beautiful sets and costumes and just make them look like shit. <laughs> I love the Lord of the Rings. I love Tolkien. I love everything that that they did. But the slow motion in that first film, oh, man. 
Yeah. It's it is not slow mo done right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is very much done right here. And uh, yeah, we keep cutting back and forth between the the couple uh, banging, and then the baby uh, climbing out of the, his crib, and up to the windowsill. Uh, he does witness them and their thrusting and and whatnot. And then uh, he heads to the windowsill, and there was a detail that I had to read about later because um, I didn't actually notice it. Maybe I was caught up looking at other details, um, probably naked people. Um, but apparently there's like a balloon or something that he's reaching for. Um, oh. And it was theorized that, you know, she probably put that there to guide him there or something. Something, you know, bright, shiny, and attractive that a child would naturally be guided towards. Von Trier said that he was trying to make a horror film, and then this ended up being... So he was he was actually in, uh, not an institution, but he was more or less hospitalized, I think, for three months before he started working on this film. This was kind of therapeutic for him. Um, the I think that the horror element doesn't really come in until like the very like last 15 or 20 minutes of the film, which is unfortunate. And one of the reasons why I kind of like this movie is like, man, there was really kind of a missed opportunity for more of a horror movie. But you get what you get. Yeah, uh, I I feel like I agree with you. Um, I didn't feel like I was watching a horror movie most of the time. Mm -hmm. It felt more just like a tumultuous relationship slash, you know, aftermath of a tragic incident kind of film. Um, But it certainly does ramp up, like, in its last 20 minutes or so. But, yeah, for the most part, it is mostly just people dealing with grief and the horrible calamitous events that follow that but um in this prologue sequence um (laughs) some of the some of the themes some of the thematic imagery here i'm not sure maybe you can enlighten me um because i'm grasping at straws as to exactly what it all means but um it's a lot of water Mm -hmm. throughout the entire film in fact there's a lot of water um and in the prologue there are several instances of containers of water like there's a bottle that gets knocked off a table think there's a glass of water in the foreground or something that we pull back from as we're um, watching the baby monitor that they're ignoring by the way yeah there's knock there's not many knocked over waters um and then there's a a washing machine which i'm pretty sure is just a metaphor for sex um, (laughs) (laughs) because it's it's a the churning and sloshing of laundry that (laughs) comes to a stop as soon as the banging stops Um, but yeah, there's a lot of water imagery throughout the film. Um, it's, it just in the prologue. There's at least three different objects involving water. Um, but yeah, the baby falls out the window, and we get our first, um, maybe only poor effect in the entire film, which is a a baby doll falling into the snow. There's one shot. There's exactly one shot of it when it's pulled pretty far back, and we see it like about to hit the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's a dummy. <laughs> like, and not not a well articulated dummy either, but. Just the fact that they show the child hit the street, that's not something that would probably be in an American film, so hats off to him. It's one of, yeah, he was answering questions, one of the guys, like, were you, were you, like, just trying to shock audiences and trying to get, like, a, like, drum up, like, like, maybe some talk or, like, kind of placate and make this be a big production? He's like, I don't think that that's reasonable. <laughs> I don't think that this film for a second was going to be a smash box office success. <laughs> like, come on, dude. There's scissors in here. Um, there, <laughs> uh, the back to the water. There's a there's more shots like her crossing the bridge under the running water. Uh, there's a there's I thought it was a really strange shot where Willem Dafoe looks out the window when it's raining and there's two glasses filling up with rainwater. Um, there's an, also a moment where uh, the character her is uh, sh- 
she's trying to drink water. She's having like a panic attack or like an anxiety attack. And she's trying to get a sip of water, but her hand is shaking so bad that she can't even get a drink. So I think Von Trier was kind of, kind of going through his own experiences and maybe, maybe just anxiety, having an anxiety attack makes you like super thirsty or something. And like, there's just nothing you can do about it. I'm not, I'm not real sure. There's probably something else that he was meaning with the water, but I'm not entirely sure. Well, I'm going to take it for a little bit of a walk if you don't there you mind. Go. Take um, it for a walk. <laughs> so uh, there's a concept that uh, in, in college I had a professor that was kind of half of my professor, not really my professor, but somebody that I attended lectures for. That um, They had this uh, idea of liminality that they talked about at length. It's the idea of the spaces between spaces. Basically, the concept is that transitionary realms are realms of like great possibility, but also great danger. So for instance, a bridge which it just so happens she crosses several times in this film and uh, you can almost mark a transition point in the film when mm -hmm. things start to ramp up and it's when we cross that threshold very much uh, which also happens to be suspended over a river and one thing that uh, the elemental characteristics of water is that it's it's the uh, to quote the fifth element the element which brings life <laughs> um but it's also an element that can kill you uh, too much of it can kill you um so you have this one uh, very dramatic and very, very, very like distinct instance where uh, we do a scene transition. The camera zooms almost endlessly into a a uh, bouquet of flowers in a in a in a glass vase that's transparent, and we see that the the roots of the cut flowers are kind of molding, mm -hmm. like they're moldering and like they have like algae on them. They're kind of grimy, but the plants look just fine. Like mm -hmm. the flowers look great. But the stems in, in submerged in the water are rotting. Um, so it's this idea of maybe being somewhere in between, where it's like this dangerous element that not only can it cure you of whatever's ailing you, it also can make it that much worse or something. And also just the idea of something being bubbling just below the surface, even though the exterior looks just fine. Well, she foreshadows the uh, the foxhole that comes into play later, and she's like, "I," she's like, "How how do you feel about that?" And he's like. I don't know. There's something. It seems like it should be easy, but it's muddy. So I think you can even uh, throw the water into that as well. Yeah, it, it's not something I want to dwell on. It's just something that seemed very deliberate on the part yeah. of the filmmaker, where it's like, wow, that's a lot of water inside of a, a couple minute long prologue sequence, and then carries on throughout the rest of the film. Um, but it needs to be said, this film is broken up into chapters, which mm -hmm. might make it easier for us to talk about. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we we did have a prologue. Um, but there are, what, four chapters in an epilogue, I believe? Three and a... I think it's three and, a, and an epilogue. Because we go through grief, despair, and then uh, genocide spelled gynocide. G-Y. Uh, gr grief, pain, despair, and the three beggars. Oh, and the three beggars, yes. Uh, so, yeah, but, um, that's another thing that's in the prologue, is there are three statues mm -hmm. on uh, someone's desk, I would assume hers, uh, that read grief pain despair mm -hmm. um and i guess you could identify these as the various stages of depression uh or following a grievous incident like the loss of a child mm -hmm. um but immediately after the prologue i believe we end up in a hospital right uh we have the um oh the, have, funeral, the funeral the funeral procession yes. yeah i mean yeah um, willem dafoe's having a real like he's really he I feel like he's dealing with it now and she's like cat almost like catatonic just like staring off and she i'm assuming from dehydration or lack of food just collapses and then yeah she ends up in the hospital um 
It's important to note that Willem Dafoe is not a psychiatrist. Willem Dafoe is a therapist. There is a difference. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I keyed in on that um, when it was brought up because uh, she she collapses during the funeral procession, which is shot from the interior of the hearse, by the way. Um, it's mm. kind of spooky because there's the sound is all dropped out of it, and we see a Willem Dafoe like walking, like the whole crowd following the hearse as it's leaving the cemetery, heading into the cemetery, and he's just bawling and she's just stone-faced and she ends up collapsing but yeah we end up in this hospital and uh he's kind of huffy mm-hmm. about uh, her treatment i guess he doesn't like that they're giving her drugs and they want to keep her there even though she's already been there for like a month um and yeah uh, i think it's mentioned that he is not an md like mm-hmm. he is not a he's not a clinical therapist like he's he's like a counselor basically probably even less than that and not um, to say that what they do is any less helpful, but a psychiatrist prescribes medicine to patients who need medicine, who need medication. Yeah, uh, so he's, you know, he doesn't have the credentials probably to deal with what this woman's dealing with, being as she has been in this hospital for a month now. Uh, whatever she's got uh, probably requires a great deal of care that I would not expect just, you know, her husband to take care of. I couldn't imagine being, like, I feel like if you're going to be married to, like, a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, you have to be one as well, because I feel like it's like a, a like, a emotions-sharing uh, chess match. It's like, if you're a person that's not familiar with, like, psychology, and you're married to somebody who's a psychiatrist, like, anytime they cross their legs and sit back, and like, oh, yeah? Well, why don't you talk about that? I'm like, fuck. They're, <laughs> they're, 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 they're trying to get in my brain. They're trying to get in there. No, I, honestly, I, I... I don't know how you would do that. Like that, that sounds awful. Like yeah. that sounds like you would, it would be kind of like, I don't know, being somebody who lives a very pragmatic, very focused lifestyle living with like, I don't know, an avant-garde actress or an actor or something where it's like, you know, okay, you, you pretend in experimental art all day and I deal with real world shit every day. How, how do we meet in the middle here? <laughs> well, she was working on a, on a dissertation or a thesis of some kind, but yeah. it sounded like it was like anthropology, perhaps. Like she's also some kind of science, like some kind of uh, uh, maybe social science background, but it wasn't, it isn't for sure exactly what she is or was. Yeah, it, it sounded like she's an academic of some sort. And uh, at one point they do have a discussion where she uh, kind of, puts words in his mouth and says that like i think she had like a dream or a thought that he referred to her work as glib mm. and at one point she does entertain that it's like yeah it probably is um and then when you when you find out what she's been studying it's like good lord like yeah, what right? is the point of that <laughs> so like um maybe it is um but yeah she's in the hospital and he wants to pull her out and uh i think he brings her home to their apartment and it seems pretty clear that uh, either either he hasn't been there very often in the past month or or something along those lines because like he still like finds their kids toys like mm-hmm. strewn about the house and he has to like hide them from her um but we have a lot of really intense moments here when they're living together where she keeps waking up in the night and sh- her the manifestation of her symptoms is very physical it's mm-hmm. very visceral like it, it's it's nothing that can be articulated really she just like goes off into spasms and wakes up in the middle of the night and starts thrashing around and she is very demanding of like having sex with him Mm -hmm. uh, seemingly just on demand um but it seems very apparent that it's it's to mask whatever intense feelings or emotions she's enduring 
um it doesn't seem healthy in no. fact it's it's kind of terrifying at times because she's like she's forcing herself on him and like really really going at it and he's like uh can you give me a sec yeah. <laughs> and also at one point he does verbalize like it's not right to to bang your therapist yeah. <laughs> well you put her in this situation asshole like you pulled her off the meds she was on the meds for a reason um and i i've I've seen like some people who have been on like there's still withdrawals for different medications, so she might also be having a little bit of withdrawal um, at one point from some of the medication because she was on it for a month. I don't know if that's substantial, but she might have had withdrawals there. But yeah, she's seems to be suffering from anxiety attacks, and he has to like like show her how to breathe and everything. Yeah, I want to draw attention to that actually um, because that sequence was very fascinating to me, um, and it again it speaks to I guess like liminality a little bit where when she's she wakes up in the middle of the night and she's um she can't breathe like she's hyperventilating and she can't she can't catch her wind um and he embraces her and he starts like whispering in her ear and he's counting numbers he's telling her he's teaching her how to breathe in fact i think he tells her that like i'm going to teach you how to breathe and we get like this series of cuts where we see like um, it's almost like in grayscale, just like macro shots of different parts of her body. And we hear like a heart heartbeat playing over these different shots. And it's like the back, it's like the nape of her neck and like, like her serratus muscles underneath her arm by her rib cage and her neck. Um, and it's almost like a rebirth because he says he's going to teach her how to breathe. And the, the combination of the grayscale and the heartbeat made me think of almost like looking at an ultrasound of a fetus. Um, it's really interesting that uh, she does come out of that and she kind of uh, reassumes her personality after that because in that moment she's barely functioning she, like she's unable to breathe like she's barely a human at that point I mean, you could think of his character as trying to get her to leave like instead of coping with and like dealing with the death he's trying to get her to just forget it and when I first watched the film I didn't really see a problem with what he was doing like I'm like he seems to have moved past this, at least, at least on the outside. Like he seems to be functioning, and she is not functioning. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I understand where he's coming from. He's like, I'm, I've gotten past this hurdle, which she is still stuck on, and I want to help her get past that. And I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to do. People need to. Some people need to actually deal with this on their own and in their own way. And he's not letting her do that. Yeah, uh, I mean, the the chapter headings for each chapter of the film, like we said, are this one is grief, the one that we're in as we're, as we're talking about the events right now, but we move on to pain and then despair. Um, and yeah, we were talking about this before we, we've recorded. That's like there's there's a difference between the way the way people experience different sensations, mm-hmm. like just the just the I- idea of being depressed or experiencing grief. Um, it's unfair to assume that oh a month has passed I'm I'm at this point oh naturally they should be on, at the same point I am it's like no it doesn't really work that way this is this is a thing that sometimes only time can heal and even then there's still going to be residual damage um, after the fact um, but yeah it's it's kind of um, brazen on his point like he's basically his treatment for her is exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. Like, he keeps trying to get her to pin down what her greatest fear is. And I defy you to 
come up with that answer on the spot. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, in fact, he comes up with like three or four different possibilities by the end of the film, and it's never concretely answered. But he's very insistent that she she give him a direct answer to this question. Um, but yeah, that that's his idea is that he he wants to discern what it is that terrifies her, and then he wants her to expose herself to it, like kind of like you're trying to, I don't know cure an allergy or something it's like uh i'm not sure grief works like that buddy also people don't you can't force somebody into therapy that's something that people have to choose on their own they have they have to be ready to deal with it she's not ready yeah yeah I, nothing nothing about her body language or her demeanor suggests that she's ready but um she's oh. also her defenses are so down that she just kind of goes with it mm-hmm. although she is resistant many times even in this initial chapter she is pushing back pretty hard at times you can definitely see something's festering there like she definitely has some frustration like she says something like you didn't even want to like what she said like you didn't even want to come with us like you you distanced yourself from from the boy whatever his name was adam was it adam something like that something like that (laughs) she's like you kind of i guess he was kind of biting and she's just like hmm he didn't like he didn't he couldn't react to it and I think that's one of the problems of maybe dating a therapist. or He's therapizing his wife. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very strange dynamic, and it's and he, very uncomfortable. And he knows what he's doing, too. And uh, she's like, uh, she mentions, like, don't you think that it's wrong to, uh, don't you think that the psychiatrist would think it's wrong that you were doing therapy? He's like, on principle, yes. And like he even knows what he's doing is not right. Yeah, uh, there's there's a lot of conflict bubbling underneath the surface. Um, it does come to light every now and again, um, but yeah, that that sequence where she she criticizes him mm-hmm. uh, for being distant, I was like, ooh, yeah. like like I. There's no way this marriage is gonna last. By the way, <laughs> actually, that that was a huge takeaway for me um, from from the events in this film. Was I was like, this feels like a story that's just about like two really busted shitty people that are not meant to be together (laughs) like 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 honestly like neither of them neither of them is particularly good quote unquote like they're they're both kind of shitty people in their own ways Mm -hmm. and the dynamic between them is particularly strained um but yeah uh, in this early chapter here um basically what what they figure out i guess or at least he does is that um she seems to have a fear centering around a location called eden um, which is a cabin off in the woods that uh, she was doing the art, the vast majority of her work, I guess, for mm-hmm. her dissertation or her th- or her thesis. Um, and for some reason, she's terrified of just nature and and the the exterior of that cabin area. Um, so, being as he he wants to take her down the path of exposure therapy, he's like, okay, I guess we're going to Eden. Um, and by the way, the story takes place in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, I saw the King County Medical Examiner like, oh, yeah. Seattle. Yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, that's one of the early events of the film is he gets a, a medical examiner's notice in the mail. And yeah, it says King County. And I'm like, hey, that's where I live. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm curious where this cabin's supposed to be. Obviously, yeah. they didn't film it out here, but, you know. No, I think it, I don't think, well, Lars von Trier doesn't fly. Uh, and if he's been to America, it's been on boat. I don't even think he's been to America. So I'm assuming this was shot in like Germany or something. It yeah it it doesn't look at all like like Washington the, Pacific the Washington no. I know, um, but yeah uh, being as uh, this is 
not Washington. We take a train to get there. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, that's your train? first tip. Yeah, that's your first tip that you're not in the U.S. <laughs> I really like how he tells you, like, it's very subtle that it's a train. At first it looks like a car, but then you can see that it's going backwards. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, um, it's this this shot is really really cool because it's it's looking outside and and we see the tree line whizzing by and and i like you i thought it was a car at first um and then we have some editing trickery that happens here that's it's it's subliminal but not because it calls enough attention to itself that's like if you didn't notice that you're a shithead (laughs) Um, uh, basically we get like a frame of her face staring into us and like mouth agape it's just in the center of the frame it just goes it's just a single mm, frame yes. or two, and uh, we see a couple of, like naked bodies off in the corners of the frame. It's just the tree line whizzing by, and then kind of like Fight Club, just yeah, like, Club. One's like, was that was that a dick? Especially <laughs> 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 um, single frames of pornography into family films. Yeah, uh, but we get a we get a really interesting moment here where it's it's all narration, and the camera zooms into her face as he's asking her to visualize um, the cabin before they get there. Um, so we get introduced to the location where the majority of the film takes place um, before the characters physically get there. And I really love the look of her, uh, her dreamscape. I think that these were dreams that Von Trier actually had. And uh, there's a few, I think maybe with the Criterion. I found them on YouTube, but the, I guess the, the guy who was coming up with the dreamscape is like, yeah, this Von, these were from Von Trier's own dreams. And he said, I was really fascinated that he knew exactly what he wanted. Like he pulled them straight out of what he saw and then put it to film. And I think that these sequences are more or less what he did. Yeah, it, it's kind of fascinating that you mentioned the, the exactness of his vision um, because that's actually a, a curious element of this film is that Maybe it was just because of the the beauty of the prologue sequence, but just in those first couple minutes, I found myself um, like saying to myself, like, "This is a work of art." I feel like it's almost sinful to know how it was manufactured. Mm-hmm. Like I feel I feel like these shots are so ornately detailed and and precise in how they're they're assembled. It's like it feels like it does a disservice to the material to dissect it on like a logistical, like pragmatic level, like how, how each shot was set up, what the actor's methodology was for each of the setups and whatnot. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a film. Mm-hmm. So it, it, as much of a work of art as you would like it to be, it's still a, a work of craftsmanship that was delivered by the hands of, you know, how many dozens of people. And um, that translates um, to some of the, the supplemental materials that I watched where you say the guy who was um, creating the, the sets and, and the look of the dreamscapes was given very precise detail. Um, funny enough, the, uh, the makeup effects people were not given that. <laughs> um, uh, it was completely contrary to that. They were told, we need these props to do these things, how we're going to shoot and light them. I'm going to figure that out when we get there. So you better do a great fucking job so it looks good from any angle in any light. <laughs> he might have the best uh, practical effects group working on his films because this and um, uh, the house that Jack built, just just, just great stuff. <laughs> That's a spicy meatball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Um, but yeah, to highlight the the look at this dreamscape is it's shot in the same locations as far as I can tell, using the same props and like environment. 
Um, but everything, like all the highlights are blown out. So all the whites are extraordinarily mm-hmm. white. Um, and all the mid-tones are extraordinarily blown out. And uh, again, everything is shot in incredible slow motion to the point that's like, is it moving? Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. Like, again, this was probably like a thousand frames a second or something. Uh, because it's like her in a sundress walking across a bridge and it takes the entirety of that shot for her like one step to occur (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but she's just kind of like talking her husband through the landscape as she maneuvers through it and then there's this great big tree that has all of its branches stripped from it It looks like a spear jutting out of the ground with some thorny bits on it there's no leaves or anything like that um and then she gets to the outside of the cabin and he he tells her like don't go in you're you're scared of the outside so we want you to stay outside um then he tells her to lay down in the grass and i believe color comes into the picture at this point Mm -hmm. like improper because the colors are very muted up to this point and he tells her to like melt into the grass melt into the landscape and she does and it it feels like a very deliberate transition point in the story or something um because it was very it was very it felt very significant that moment when when she laid down did that um, but that pulls us out of the dream, and um, we get off the train. We don't really show the transition from the moving vehicle, but we're we're just in the woods. We get our camping gear, and we go up hiking through the woods. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they're going on their hike. She gets to a point. She's like, the ground is burning. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, the ground's not burning. And his frustrations kind of fester every every once in a while, but they're very subtle. And just the way he talks to her sometimes. And this was one of those. I'm like, he's like, the ground's not burning. <laughs> and she pulls off her she pulls off her shoe. She's kind of like just she she's getting uh she didn't tape up her feet, so they're kind of just burning on the bottom. She's like, I'm gonna take a nap for a little bit, just lay down. He's like, okay. I mean, she's suffering from depression. Yeah, she's, she's pretty sleepy. Um, yeah. and he kind of just goes to off to the side to kind of look around. Um, and he sees uh it looks like a doe, like a young doe, uh, and he's just kind of having this moment with this deer. Uh, by the way, real animals in this, the uh, the fox, the deer, and the crow, all trained actors <laughs> in oh, wow. this film, yes. They, they get credit, man. <laughs> I, I am shocked. I was I'm stupid, and I'm like, oh, they're going to talk about the, th- what are they, the three... Beggars. The three beggars. I'm like, maybe he's going to talk about the significance of that, and like, oh, no, no, these were real animals. We're going to talk about how we use these real animals for these shots. I'm like, ah, oh, uh, yeah, he's not going to project his own meaning onto this for you. Why would I think <laughs> that he would do that? Um and like, he's just kind of having this moment with this deer and the deer turns and it looks like she had tried to give birth and she had like kind of a stillborn or it was like it just was stuck in the sack that it was supposed to come out of and it's just kind of hanging out out of her vagine just kind of hanging out the back and this was one of those moments when I first watched it I'm like oh jeez maybe that's not the best thing for them to see right now <laughs> jeez and Willem Dafoe's character just kind of just has like a bewildered like huh like he doesn't really react to it it's just very strange yeah um this happens multiple times in the mm-hmm. film where he just sees something horrible and he doesn't really know how to process it and I think that's actually probably intentional because when I when I caught wind of the fact that it's like oh okay this is an exposure therapy story this is about him trying to pull her out of her funk or whatever mm-hmm uh, I think you'd be silly not to be keeping one of your eyes fixated on him the whole mm. time. Yeah. Cause it's like, Hmm, he's trying to be like the solid pillar of, you know, confidence and integrity, but it's like, dude, your kid t- 
toppled out the window onto the sidewalk. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're probably kind of fucked inside too. So as much as you want to pretend that you're on the level and she's not, you've got you've got some stuff to process too. So the whole time I'm watching him try to guide her and like I'm keeping a trained eye on him, like being hmm. Is, am I going to see some cracks here and there? Am I going to see him having more like festering issues than she does even? Uh, it doesn't really get to that point, but repeatedly, whenever he seems to be you know, at the height of his confidence or whatever, he sees something or, or comes across something that just like kind of smashes it to pieces. Well, it makes sense that how would you... How would somebody who is a therapist who's just dealt with something traumatic, how do they die... How do they try to avoid dealing with it you dig into your work what's his work he's a therapist who does he have to work with his grieving wife so it makes sense that like he's not really grieving right now he's putting himself into his work unfortunately that work is his wife yeah um compartmentalization it's Mm -hmm. a it's a thing that uh it's a very very useful tool that seems i don't know seems to be more prevalent among men Mm -hmm. um but it's also not the healthiest thing sometimes um, because like you said exposure therapy sometimes confronting things head-on is what needs to be done um but yeah i i I was keeping that in the back of my mind the whole time i was watching the movie it was just like he's he's probably processing things too so Mm -hmm. i'm gonna keep an eye on him but i believe that concludes uh the first chapter the grief um, which yeah and uh, the the chapter slides. Um, it's like a. It looks like a chalkboard. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it was drawn by a child. It was probably drawn by the director. It's a. That's a Von Trier staple. He does that. I think in almost okay. every movie I've seen is some okay. kind of chapters. But yeah, it displays the title of the film and uh, the chapter. Um, and yeah, it, it's messy. It looks like it was drawn by a child, and it says uh, "Pain, uh, Chaos Reigns." Um, and yeah, there. <laughs> This begins like a cycle of them like hanging out in the cabin. Yeah. And again, she's repeatedly trying to have sex with him. Um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's a lot that happens in this chapter. But if I was to identify a single chapter in the film that was a lull in this. the proceedings, it would be chapter two. And the, um, I don't really know what I could really glean from it. Like, I'm not sure. This is just kind of her dealing with like them kind of therapizing a little bit like he has her um walk between the two stones kind of thing just trying to get her trying to get her like into nature i suppose um yeah i'm trying to think of some of the conversations that they have right here i didn't pinpoint any because they have little moments uh there's there's some moments but the film seemingly doesn't want to draw too much attention to them maybe because it's saving its energy for later Mm -hmm. um but there's there's a lot of material here it's just it's not really it doesn't strike you as relevant until later um so it it feels like a lull in the action but i guess it's necessary because it's not that long of a movie to be honest no um but at some point uh he finds some photos of her and their child it was uh nick by the way is the Mm -hmm. kid's name um and i noticed that like that's a shitty photo (laughs) like she looks she has no expression on her face and the kid doesn't look particularly thrilled either it's like yeah i guess this isn't a a particularly happy family because like not even a smirk not even a little bit of a smile gee also uh, there's a really icky moment like i don't know what it is about human nature but um his arm outside Mm -hmm. the window 
Mm. I don't like looking at that. Well, gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> there's a thing about the windows here. Like the windows kind of open up on their own. It seems like there's. We forgot to mention there's kind of a force, something yes. happening in nature. I think that's the important thing to take away from here. Is it feels kind of like Evil Dead a little bit with, like there's just a, there's a really nice shot that I like where they're kind of walking through the ferns. It looks like in Jurassic Park too. And I'm going to the long grass. There's just this <laughs> subtle like uh, I think she kind of runs off like. Uh, she runs off to do something, and there's this this one little fern that just has like a little tug, and I think this is when he sees the fox, and it's it's just really subtle. I really like how they did that. Yeah, that happens at the conclusion of the chapter, mm. but um, we do meet the uh, the three beggars refers to three animals that we encounter, like three to- totemic animals, I guess. Um, so the first was the the doe or the deer. Mm. Um, there's a fox at one point, but there's also like a raven or a crow. Um, that I believe it's right after they, they do the rock exercise. Mm-hmm. So when they wake up in the morning, the, the thing that I was talking about is that, like you said, there's some sort of chaotic force at work in this environment. Like the environment itself seems unwelcome. Like it seems kind of dangerous in its own way, which makes sense. Like on a primitive level, human beings don't do very well out in the cold wilderness. I have a theory, because this was dedicated to Tarkovsky, and I think yeah. that since Von Trier made this after his hospitalization and him his own anxiety um, attacks, I think that these sequences of being outside there's in, in the beginning or in the beginning of Stalker, they're in this dead zone, like this zone that was like supposed to be I guess kind of like mystical like uh, something happens like you get lost in there so what they have to do is there's three guys and you have to throw I think it's you have to throw a rope in one direction and you have to follow or you have to throw a rock into a certain direction you have to walk in that direction and stalker takes place almost entirely outside and I think this might be his reference to that like maybe this is how he dealt with depression or dealt with his own anxiety was diving into these kinds of movies and I think Tarkovsky is a big, uh, big part of this. At least this part, I think. Well, I mean, I believe one of the first slides on the ending credits of the film is dedicated mm-hmm. to Tarkovsky. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised if he if he drew material from, you know, one of his more famous works. But um, yeah, it needs to be said. I forget if we mentioned it, but uh, Lars von Trier himself uh, deals with depression. Oh yeah. Um, and anxiety in particular. Um, but one thing that um, in exploring the supplemental materials on the disc uh, that came to light was that uh, this particular form of therapy is one that he has gone through himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was all fertile ground for storytelling for him because it's all stuff he has firsthand knowledge of and probably firsthand frustrations with. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, when, Willem Def- uh, when Willem Dafoe wakes up in the morning... Um, there's a bunch of like it looked like ticks or something all over his hand. Some kind of they leech it. It looked like uh, they look like little pieces of like something you decorate a cake with, but they're little yeah. leeches. It's some sort of little insect critters that are you know, like stuck to his hand, mm-hmm. and uh, the windows, like you said, more than once in the film, seem to open on their own because nobody opens them. They're just open when it seems grossly inappropriate to have them open because it looks fucking cold up there. Yeah. Um, and he struggles to make a fire the first night. But, yeah, his first exercise for her is to, like, have her walk between two rocks. And he has to, like, piggyback her out there into the grass because she has some sort of fear, like some sort of irrational fear and anxiety about the grass in front of the cabin. Um, maybe it has something to do with the fact that she lost uh, their child 
for a for a spell yes um, that makes sense and and she ran out into the front of the cabin to look for him um, maybe it has something to do with that i'm not sure uh, but this exercise is just like i guess a like a, a toes dip into the water kind of exercise where it's like okay you walked five feet between these two stones that's the first leg of the journey we'll, we'll keep moving the stones further until you you know are cured or whatever i don't exactly know how that would work but it's something he really wants her to do um but an incident here that is significant that happens uh, is that i think right after they're like con- he's like congratulating her on completing this task um is when a a baby chick falls from a tree yeah. <laughs> onto an anthill and then its mother presumably its mother like a crow or a raven swoops down picks it up and starts eating it yeah. <laughs> um put a pin in that for the for the proceedings of the film um but it's like it's very similar to the deer where it's like this it should be like a beautiful moment of nature like oh it's a baby chick or whatever oh shit it fell from the tree and now it's being eviscerated by its mother yeah nate damn nature you scary (laughs) right yeah but one uh one major quote that i pulled from this chapter was uh um it comes from her uh charlotte gainsburg um i understood that everything it used to be beautiful about eden was perhaps hideous um, now I couldn't hear what I couldn't. Now I could hear what I couldn't hear before. The cry of all things that are going to die. Um, and I believe she says this when the acorns are falling on the roof, um, which happens repeatedly in the film, and it's a uh, an audio cue that is deeply unsettling mm-hmm. um, because I don't do well with noises above my head, <laughs> um, <laughs> as evidenced by my shitty upstairs neighbors um, driving me up the walls day in and day out. Um, but yeah, it's just 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 oppressive, constant noise of acorns falling from a tree onto like a tin roof above them, and I think I think it's not insignificant um, that you know an acorn is part of a tree's reproductive cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of this has to deal with a, a woman being kind of the focal point of the tension and the anxiety of the story. Um, but yeah, she says this, I believe, when the acorns are falling in the middle of the night. Um, and it's like a, a portent or like an omen of things to come, I guess. Yeah, this um, is this where she's talking about losing, like she heard the screaming, she heard the kid crying, and she was looking around for him, and she couldn't find him. Was that in this chapter? I believe so. I could be wrong about that. Um, but at one point, we do see that he opens the autopsy report, though we don't learn the details of that until a little bit mm-hmm. later but the the concluding moment of the chapter i believe is the encounter with the fox um which <laughs> i yeah. sent you a clip from billy madison yeah. <laughs> uh, because don't um, yourself moron <laughs> don't yourself moron oh my god that <laughs> is funny, funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah he we do meet the fox who i guess would be the third of the three beggars um this was a particularly unsettling moment for me in the film yeah am, am i Am I correct in thinking that there are two foxes, one of whom is being eaten by the other? No, he's eating himself. Oh, okay. That's what I was seeing. Yeah, and it looks legit. That's what's insane. This is a fox actor, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Very good fox. He, he sat still. Yeah, he was excellent. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's eating himself. And I'm like, wow, that's... I'm like, God damn it, fox, don't be doing that to yourself. <laughs> You're beautiful. <laughs> that's one of, one of my top five pets that I want. I want a pet fox. Have you heard of... Have you heard them, like, 
like they have like a giggle. It's the cutest thing. They smile and giggle. I have um we on my uh, on my college campus, Evergreen State College, uh, there was a little fox that would stalk you. Um he was so tiny. Like I was not afraid of him at all, but like in the wee hours of the of the morning, uh, he would be like 30, 50 feet behind you, and he'd just be like hiding behind trees, <laughs> oh, watching you. So and he'd be doing the thing where the tree is like only three inches wide, and he'd be, he'd be hiding behind it. It's like, dude, you're like 14 <laughs> inches long. <laughs> like, I can totally see every part of you. <laughs> oh, but he'd funny. follow you, and it was, he was adorable. That's he probably cute. killed a lot of rabbits. <laughs> I'm sure he did. Good at that. But yeah, I, I, know, I know for a fact foxes are adorable. <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, yeah, he. Did, He's kind of unsettled. What does the what does the fox say to him? What does the fox chaos reigns? <laughs> I don't know if I told you this, but when I was taking German in college, uh, I had to switch over to Spanish. But um, I was, when I transferred schools, I didn't offer German, and I kept. It was when what does the fox say was really popular, and my professor was Romanian, uh, but she spoke I mean, she spoke like four or five languages, and yeah. I kept at the end of it I'm like she's European. She's had to have heard the uh, the what does the fox say? She's got a kid. I'm sure she's she's heard it by now. So at the end of each of my exams, I would put in German or what I thought was German each time was what does the fox say? And I would get my <laughs> exams back, and she would be messing with the grammar. She's like, this goes over here, and she's like, I don't understand what you're trying to say. <laughs> and it never worked, and it never she never got what I was doing. Wow. I'm yeah. sorry, Kyle. <laughs> Your year-long crusade or whatever to make yeah. her laugh. Quarter. Like, what, yeah, it was a quarter. What the fox say? <laughs> um, but yeah, the fox uh, speaks to Willem Dafoe through the reeds, Chaos Reigns, um, which happens to be the chapter heading. And uh, apparently this is one of the few instances of CGI imagery in the film. Uh, the face for the fox had to be animated, mm -hmm, which makes obviously. sense, you know, to get it to move its mouth in that way. Um, and its voice was provided by Willem Dafoe himself, but so modulated to the point that's like, tell. other than for artistic purposes of being able to say that it's his voice, you really can't tell that it's him. Mm -mm. The um. Um, one thing about Von Trier that I have to say is that you're never like. Sometimes you're disappointed with on the nose CGI where it's like deliberate. He's not a director that I'm disappointed. Like it, it's never disappointing. It never takes me out of the film. It um so. I'm never taken out of the film by the CGI, if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, um, that, that makes sense. He strikes me as the kind of director that probably doesn't like to use it if unless it's necessary. Mm -hmm. In this case, I can totally see why you'd have to, where yeah. it's like, as trained as a fox can be, I don't think getting it to mouth, <laughs> speak for yourself, moron, <laughs> is, going to, is going to be easy. So for logistical purposes, yeah, I get it. Okay. Um, how does the next chapter start? Uh, so chapter three, despair in uh, parentheses, gynocide, which gynocide. happens to be the uh, title of her thesis. I think um, we have to start talking about the, uh, the the themes of women here pretty soon because it's pretty overarching. Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to find the right opportunity because it, it is going to be a huge thing that we have to talk about, but I'm like trying not to derail us. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about her character a little bit. Sure, um, sure. We, I don't know when when's the right time to talk about the actual incident at the beginning and what she was actually doing at that time. Um, she actually, uh, early in the first chapter, she's like, he's gotten up. It's like, I know he used to get up sometimes. He would just get up and he would get out somehow and she's like you didn't hear him at all like she kind of asks him like you didn't hear him get up at all and he's like no how could i mean we were 
we were doing some work. Okay, I didn't hear you. Uh, <laughs> I was putting in work, uh, <laughs> and in uh, uh, here we kind of this is where we kind of get the I uh, like get the sense that she's kind of kind of shitty, um, or maybe there's more to her than we didn't realize. Well, this this chapter, if I remember right, kind of begins with detective work. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is the unearthing of. Uh, like the core of the story is beforehand we we're kind of fut- we we're futzing around the woods we we're trying yes. to you know a lot of it was faffing about yes. as, as our friends across the pond would say but um he finds her like her uh, jason Voorhees wa- workshop mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh he uh, there's no sweater or severed mother's head in there but there are a lot of really really disturbing uh like etchings and uh, uh not ancient but like antiquated uh rendering artist renderings of uh cruelties done to women Mm -hmm. which refers to her thesis gynocide which is basically her exploration of murder and or cruelty done to women over the ages Mm -hmm. um seemingly particularly in the east in the western world but he finds like her hidey hole where all of her research materials are in i think it's like an an attic it's an attic yeah yeah um and he keeps it to himself for the most part. Like he doesn't explicitly like start throwing pages in her face and say, "What the fuck?" Yeah. <laughs> um, he, but he he keeps a level head and uh, he like initiates like a role playing mm-hmm. uh, exercise with her. Where uh, right when she wakes up, by the way, like I know that's kind of rude. Like she's still got like the sheets sheet imprint on her face. Like, try doing anything at that point. Like just waking up, we're gonna yeah, do role playing. What the fuck? Get me it's, a cup of coffee. It's like, am I a fucking Navy SEAL or some shit? What is this? <laughs> <a> SEAL school? <laughs> um, but, yeah, he basically says, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to assume a role, and you're going to give me responses. So, role-playing, essentially. And he says, I- I'm nature. Uh, everything that you call nature. And uh, she kind of takes a really dark turn here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forget if it happens here or earlier in the film but at some point she uses the phrase uh nature is satan's church mm-hmm. uh it's first instance of theology or satan coming up in the film and it's like Ooh, i'm married to that <laughs> like okay <laughs> um probably shouldn't have gotten that cabin but um but yeah this uh exchange like continues to intensify and uh this leads to um the poster image for the film which I can understand why mm-hmm. they would use this as the promotional material for the film because it's such a striking image. Yeah, it's like uh, I think I think I wanted to watch this movie based on the image before I even knew it was a von Trier movie. And then when me I, too, me too. Then when I found it, I never watched it. And then I'm like, oh, it's Lars von Trier. I'm like, and it's like, oh, a horror drama. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's just jump right into that. Yeah, when I saw this image, um, I actually uh, I thought it was going to be shot like a stage play for some reason hmm. i thought that could have been a neat gimmick actually like if he, if it intentionally looked like it was shot on a stage like a, a live performance he has a film that i it's probably gonna be the next one i watch i, I haven't gotten to breaking the waves yet i actually own it uh, the criterion oh. release of it. i just haven't gotten around to it because it's like two hours and 40 minutes and uh <laughs> i just don't have i don't have that kind of time right now um, <laughs> sorry, I about made uh, Trevor <laughs> spit his drink out. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> uh, no, there's one with um, Tom C- Dogville. Um, I think that if you look up some of the images from that, uh, 
check out, just check out some of the images from that film, and I think you'll understand. It, oh my god, three fucking hours. Um, <laughs> I think that, that he does actually have a movie that you're referring to. It looks like it's on a stage. Oh yeah, um, I I googled it just now, and um, I don't know if that's what the finished film looks like, but it looks like um, I think it is. Wow, that looks cool. I want to see that just based on that. I'm telling you, dude, he is a fascinating director. He's a fascinating man. I'm impressed. I've only seen the two movies, but so far I'm kind of liking him. Now you understand Uh, why I'm just like, I, there's something about them. Like you just keep coming back. Like, I just want to see, I want to see his whole filmography. Like there's yeah, uh, folks at home. If, uh, if you've never seen any images from Dogville, uh, just do a quick Google search and, uh, just look at the, look at the uh, blueprint. They actually have like a a layout Mm -hmm. for the set. And it looks like they built like a small town basically for the cameras to just maneuver through looks very cool um but back to this movie <laughs> um derailed um the uh the image that kyle and i have been skirting around here this promotional image basically uh she uh she really 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 wants his dick um, yeah and uh i for- i forget how many times it comes up in the film but she she is calling for him to start hitting her um while they're while she's mounted him and he's resistant to begin with but now she's saying i want you to hit me uh because i i want to feel that as opposed to what it is i'm currently feeling Mm -hmm. um i don't know how everyone react how most people would react to that personally i wouldn't feel particularly comfortable uh fulfilling that request but she does i think she does throw it in his face at one point maybe not in this particular exchange but then you don't love me and, yeah. and I think his response is just kind of like a wimpy. Well, I guess I don't. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that would probably be my reaction too. Like to a T, that would probably be my reaction. But uh, she gets frustrated, and she runs out bare ass naked mm-hmm. into the cold woods, and uh, she lays down under a tree and starts taking care of business on her own. TCOB. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he heads out to join her. And uh, he does his part, too. Uh, so he straddles her, and uh, we get sex under a ominous-looking, like, sleepy hollow tree that looks like it was a prop as opposed to a natural um, natural tree because mm-hmm. the, the root structure just looks a little bit artificial. But Wonky, it, looks, yeah. it looks so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then the just the visual motif of, like, all the pale arms. They look like feminine arms. They look like women's arms like kind of like creeping out from under the root structure while he's you know thrusting and we get to see Wilm's butt dude i want to hats off to whoever did the lighting in this film because watching it the second time i'm like we are just a hair away from his butthole like it is so close and hats off they keep it they keep the shadow right over butthole yeah it's it's all it's all a crack no uh fisher or whatever <laughs> no no leather cheerio yeah we don't get the sea and enemy we we just get we just get the moons yeah luckily I'm like that good I don't... light good lighting and shadows on that ass so. <laughs> but uh yeah they they have sex under this tree and the the uh, image of the arms coming out from under the mm-hmm. tree is what they use to promote the, the film um it's really bizarre imagery i don't know why you like how you like well how do we skip this movie we have to watch this movie <laughs> But uh, what I'm about to share here seems like probably the best point to start zeroing in on the themes of mm-hmm. the greater, uh, like the greater themes of the story. And that would be uh, in the next morning, I believe he comes clean, or at least 
he's forced to because she finds the mm-hmm. discarded autopsy report, um, which he was planning on hiding from her. Um, and what we glean from that is that uh, Nick, the child, had deformities in his feet. Um, and it just so happens that Willem Dafoe noticed that in their family photos, his the child's shoes were consistently like placed on the wrong feet. So like the left shoe on the right foot. Um, and she confronts him about the autopsy report, but then he counters with, so what the fuck was up with his feet? <laughs> yeah, and, and I noticed how he said it, too. It's not it, it's not like how a therapist like, did you notice that the shoes were on the wrong feet? He says, did you notice you put the shoes on the wrong feet? It's condemning, yeah. Yeah, very condemning. And it's like, he's a kid. It's very, it's very easy to think that if he was putting his own shoes on, maybe he just put them on the wrong feet. But that's just not what happened. Yeah, uh, so this seems like a, a good point to get into just women, I guess, and how they relate to the director. So I guess about her character and anything and everything that comes to mind. So any, like, how do you think we should start this, Kyle? Well, I think the depression, obviously, because the film, the film trilogy is centered around depression. And I think that... Man, this is hard. How do you just jump into it? There's no, there's no easy way to just kind of. Okay, I'll, I'll start. Um, so, one thing I thought was really fascinating. It's, it's a small detail, but uh, about the casting of the film. Mm. So Charlotte Gainsbourg, if you've never seen her, she's a very slight woman. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't strike me as particularly intimidating. Um, in fact, a lot of the just like candid photos I've seen of her, she has, she is quick to smile. Um, she's English French. Um, she seems like a lovely lady. Very lovely, <coughs> lovely singer. She's actually she has a very beautiful singing yeah. voice. Yeah, um, I don't doubt that because she has a lovely speaking voice she does, for sure. Yes. <clears throat> um, but what was fascinating to me was that apparently, like I said, Ava Green mm-hmm. um, was rallying to get this role. Like she really wanted it. Badly. I don't know if I could handle this movie if <laughs> she was in it. It would be intensely distracting, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Steph and I, when we first started dating, we saw 300, that second one, in IMAX. And I'm like, holy, we are getting, getting, like, banged against the wall, boob juggling. juggling I I told, I mean, she has a a reputation as, like, you can't keep her clothes on. Like, maybe she's, maybe she has, like, a sensory thing where, like, fabric bugs her. And she's like, I need need to take this off. (laughs) Take it off. Take it off. Um, but the detail that I'm talking about here is that uh, she said that when she first met Lars von Trier, uh, he came across as very jittery and kind of scared of her. Mm. Like, he was very uncomfortable around her. Um, okay. And I, I took that to heart um, because a lot of the themes that are explored in this film surrounding women, I, I think that this is a very, very personal film. And the, the phrase that kept com- coming to mind as I was watching it is that um, woman is unknowable. Mm-hmm. And anything that's unknowable is also enticing, which makes it all the more frightening. And being as this was a film directed by a man, it can only be presented through the lens of a man. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say that a huge part of this story is about the, the gulf that exists between m- men and women. And about the fear and anxiety that can come from the lack of understanding between the two sexes. Um, and as things start to ramp up later on in the film, at, like basically at the point we're at now as we're talking about it, um, it seems to me that like perhaps that's an element of how he relates to the opposite, 
the opposite sex where it's like i i can't understand you and yet i'm drawn to you in some fashion but that scares the fuck out of me <laughs> because there's there's a thing like um actually when i was watching the element of crime and also when i was watching this film it was kind of remarkable uh uh, Haruki Murakami came to mind, uh, the author. Mm. Have you ever read his work? I have not. I highly recommend it. Um, very, very popular author. Widely published, very popular. Um, I've only read three, maybe four of his novels, but all very, very good. Very great reads. Um, but he has a thing about his uh, female characters that reminded me so much of the way the element of crime and Antichrist played out, where it's you have this kind of like listless like almost like walking through life as if a dream as if in a dream state like protagonist usually a man and then they meet this like not like a manic pixie dream girl but just like a feminine element encounters them in their life Mm -hmm. and things start to just rapidly transform and change and the two characters outlooks on reality are just so dramatically different that as you're reading about the two characters, you can't help but, especially being as I'm a man and I'm reading a, a novel written by a man and watching a film directed by a man, you can't help but, like, I don't know, like, read the passages from the perspective of the female character as just, like, this alien thing that just, it, it's, it really feels like you're being guided by the hand, like, on, like, some sort of journey of some sort of significance. And... Um, the element of crime had that in the form of the uh, prostitute mm-hmm. that accompanies the hero and like just kind of goes along with everything and, and is just ever present and kind of expedites the story in a lot of ways. And in, in Antichrist, it's like you have these two characters who are supposed to be married and have a child together and have this like long-standing relationship. And yet it seems like they don't know each other at all. But he continually keeps pushing her along seemingly just because he, he just wants to see where it'll go even though like all signs point to it being this just this like tumultuous like calamitous journey that's like i don't know if that's a wise decision buddy <laughs> like you probably shouldn't follow her well i'll throw myself under the bus here and i'd say that i i i'm able to uh i'm able to get into Lars von Trier movies because i've felt i've had to deal with my own depression and i deal with my own anxiety now and i think i know what it's like to grow up with um, somebody who's erratic, I guess, is the best way to put it. Like, you don't really know quite what's going to happen next. And I think maybe my experiences with that person have kind of made me an anxious person. And I think maybe this is his therapy. Like, I think that he probably grew up with somebody who caused him a lot of anxiety. I mean, generally, that's where mental illness comes from, is from a young age. Um, but I also know what it's like to live with a woman so i know what it's like to you it does change like if you are if you're committed to your partner it does change you somewhat you you have to you have to start looking you have to have empathy like you have to be able to empathize with that person or it's going to be bumpy for you it's not going to be fucking easy um but yeah his uh one of the things that it's kind of witches. She did you notice the off? It's kind of an offhand remark about the hail. She's like, yes, uh, yes. She's like witches. Uh, witches were alleged to be able to bring like just hail. Uh, she command. references like a like a distinct like grouping. Like I think it was three witches. I forget their title, but she does say that like the witches of so and so were known to bring about hailstorms with the the power with their power. And at some point, she does 
manifest that on her own, which is like, okay. (laughs) Kind of dancing naked in the forest is also kind of a witch theme. Um, And I I was talking to you off air about this. And again, we've got to say that we are two dudes watching a movie directed by a dude who's doing a movie about a woman. So we kind of have to project our own meaning onto it. We're not saying that this is what's happening. We're just trying to make sense of it in our own way. But I think one of the things that he included the, the witches for is kind of like I just the history of not knowing how to deal with living with women or having to deal with living with women and what that kind of amounted to. Persecution. Like, we can't figure it out. Get rid of it. Well, I mean, there's any there's all manner of like philosophers i think nietzsche was one of them that yeah. like said like a woman that's seeking education is one that you got to be wary of <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i i mean jesus th- I, I think it's fascinating that like she she's exploring this concept of gynocide at least that's the title she gives to her thesis but in actuality the material that she's studying is like about the the horrible things that have been done to women about, mm-hmm. about the evil of women about yeah. like uh what it was that brought those evils upon them um and i think the the combination of the reiteration of nature like there's a lot mm-hmm. of references to nature being a, a scary place that's full of danger um and that then on top of that women um i i think it would be wise not to discount the um just the not to use too strong a word, but horrors of the the female body. Yes. Um, the difference between like the construction of a male and a female body, like one thing that like for me as a man is impossible to grasp is just how how th- there's so many elements of just your existence as a woman that are taken out of your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a, a man, especially in like ancient times, to try to understand that. Like okay, you take you take a dynamic that already doesn't function that well together, and then you add all sorts of biological functions that the person who has to deal with it has no control over whatsoever. Women have no control over like the horm- the hormonal aspects of menstruation. Like you, you can't control that. It happens. That, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Is yeah. that you you have you have this element that it it for a man, especially in ancient times, looking at it's probably frightening to consider that's like whoa so hang on you mean you live you live day in and day out without without being able to control how your body works would you get that thing under wraps already jesus <laughs> i mean honestly that was probably the perspective for a Dude, lot of dudes could you imagine being a woman back in like the 1800s and how stupid men were like <laughs> just the um like oh my god i'm gonna put hands on you you're so stupid you dumbass <laughs> like i've i mean we don't give we don't give women of the 17th 16th 17th century enough credit like they had to deal with some dumbasses not that yeah. we're much better now yeah i'm sure it was an incredibly scary time to exist in but <laughs> but <laughs> i wish you folks at home could see kyle's face <laughs> Just I'm doing the, a Tim and Eric bit. Just, just the cosmos, the exploding, cosmos exploding in your brain. <laughs> just the profound, the profound stupidity at work. Yeah. How did we make it to the 21st century? <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. I don't know how we're gonna make it to the next one. But yeah, I I don't know that I have much to say about it. But I do think it's fascinating that that we have this n- dynamic of of nature and woman being framed as like kind of like the the hub of all evil um, mm-hmm. in this story 
presented by a man. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I don't think he does it in a cruel fashion. It doesn't come across as that. Um, but Willem Dafoe is definitely the frame character. Like he's definitely the lens through which we're examining her. Um, and it does come across as unknowable and utterly terrifying because even even when she has moments of lucidity, which come in weird places, yes. it's you're still like maybe maybe it's because I'm a dude watching a movie made by a dude, but it's like, hang on, whoa, uh what sort of sense did that make? Where's the logic? <laughs> I think once we kick into the um, uh, kind of the, th- I think that the violence in the film has some has some thematic elements. Um, well, that's perfect timing because that's wh- right where we're at. <laughs> I, I think kind of what she does to him, like she does. I, I mean, do we want to talk about exactly what she does? Because it is, it is. We've talked about everything else. Whew. So yeah, have at it, Kyle. So there. They're, are they having sex or like she tries to get him to have sex? She's going, she's daffy ducking it at one point, um, and dick trauma. I forgot, so I actually forgot about some of the the end stuff of this movie. Um, but I, I feel like it's kind of like a, a parable for somebody who's dealing with or somebody who's trying to deal with something and the other person is not acknowledging that like he is not acknowledging that she's actually trying to deal with something and it's frustrating and it finally festers to the point where she's violent with him and he ends like she ends up corkscrew or uh what would she drill like hand drills his uh his ankle well first she hits his dick and then she finishes him off which was very which very strange um and she ends up putting... I'm not sure what this thing is. It looks like some kind of grinder. Like, something used to, like, grind. It weighs about 40 pounds, I'd say. 30... Maybe 30 pounds. Um, and she ends up screwing it on... T- like, into his leg. She screws a hole through his calf. Fashions this thing through. Locks it. Like, like tightens it up so that he can't get it off with his bare hands. And then throws the wrench under the... Uh, uh, under the porch. And then he just kind of gets away. And she starts running after him, screaming, like where are you? Like, it's like full blown screaming. And I think it was kind of like a metaphor for like, you frustrated this person so bad that she's put you through this now, but she needed you the whole time. Like she actually needed your help, but you weren't helping. So you brought this on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she bashes his, his sack in with a, oh. a block of uh, firewood. It caught me um, off guard the second time. <laughs> Well, what's shocking about it, and it, it's shocking in a subtle way, is that he has no reaction to it. Like, oh, he's, he's knocked just out. out. He's just he goes into shock and he's out. Like he doesn't even scream. He's just out. Yeah. Um. And the the whole the editing and the cinematography in the sequence, it's very uh, verite. It's very we're just kind of in the moment. Mm-hmm. There's like no music. There's no drama to it. She's kind of listless while she's like kind of faffing about in there. There's really not but a lot of music in the film. There's not. Uh, there is not but um this whole sequence is like handheld and yeah she just like kind of like casually walks into the back room and i think she takes like i think it's like a lathe or something like a component of it something but it's the stone wheel or whatever is what she yeah she drills a hole in his ankle area and puts that in there and yeah i think it's not without significance that the whole time she's screaming for him um she's basically like it's like she almost like blacked out for a second Mm mm-hmm and now, now it's like she she wants both at the same time. Where it's like she wanted to lash out, but now that that's done with, all she wants is his presence uh, and understanding. And it, it 
again, like a few scenes later, uh, she's asking for him to hold her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you, I think you're exactly right. That's like you, you were, you were with her, but you weren't present. Um, and after that explosion, it's like now is when you really need to be there for her, even though she threatened your life. <laughs> but yeah, we do get to see a a, a, a prosthetic penis ejaculate blood. Um, and what is it's it with uh, art house and ejaculation? <laughs> Same thing with We Are the Flesh. At least that time it was semen. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's symbolic of so many things. It's it's very easy to project meaning onto that. I didn't really get much out of that, but mm-hmm. um, it's a very, very, very graphic moment. There, uh, the color of the blood is uh, it's very bright. It's very it's like seventies Japanese blood. <laughs> like, a, a lot of art house directors are it's kinda like riding learning to ride a bike with your dad. Like at the first like the first couple minutes your dad's got the back of your seat and he's like, oh, You're doing good, you're doing good and then at one point the director's just like, Okay now, good luck <laughs> you have fun with that. We're in that we're at that moment now. Like yes, I, I uh, contracted the the studio to manufacture the prosthetic penis. You need to have to have a large pump in it because you need to need to spray the blood Stay on her. On, blood. In, you need to have enough pressure to, to get in her face. <laughs> yes, uh, very important to the film Antichrist. Yeah. <laughs> that was a large Montreal, I believe. Thank yeah, you, Mr. Montreal. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Montreal. <laughs> But um, yeah, uh, she takes off, and uh, he crawls out of the cabin, and he he goes into the foxhole that we encountered earlier in the film several times. And uh, oh, there was one moment that um, not to completely derail us, but I just wanted to mention it. Um, I think it's in the second chapter, uh, the one that both of us seem kind of hazy on because it felt like not much was happening, mostly mm-hmm. because all the things that mean stuff uh, don't don't take on meeting until you learn more later on in the story which is so as you as you're watching it it's like okay cool i love it but, when movies do that though but yeah no I'm, I'm glad all the material that's there is there um but when you're watching it for the first time it feels a little bleh. yeah um the moment i wanted to draw attention to is uh she claims that she's recovered mm-hmm. for for just a couple of moments and she's all like bouncy and she turns into a manic pixie dream girl for mm-hmm. a moment and my god like i I had a goth friend at one point that reminds me so much of this character where it's just like the things that this person feels, I can't begin to fathom and the twists and the turns in the personality and the way they present themselves, you are not ever going to be ready for them, which is why they're not really my friend anymore (laughs) because Uh um, when it comes to unknowable other, that's that would, that would be them to a T. Um, but yeah, this moment where she claims I'm recovered and like she's like bouncing around, like I think she like goes skipping in the stream or something. It's like, yeah, I think I think we cut away to just him looking at her and he's just like, no. no. <laughs> she even gets she gets mad at him too. She's like, yes, she gets mad at him. Yeah, uh, and it kind of mirrors this exchange actually, where she's like, she explodes with energy and then immediately after just shuts the fuck down. Mm-hmm. So she's all over the place. She's all over the map. But anyway, I think that's where we saw the fox. I think she runs off, and this is where he sees the fox. That's what that's what brought it to mind. Yeah. Is that he, we go back to the foxhole, and he crawls in there, and my God, uh, this must be so painful to have this this giant 
wheel rubbing bone at this point yeah dragging it around because it looks damn heavy and it's not Um, it's not placed in a good part of the body it's not like he can it's not like dangling from the calf or whatever like it's on the inside of his leg like there's no good way to, to move around a few scenes later, she tries. She drags him through the woods back into the cabin. I was like, "Oh dear, you yeah. did not think this through, did you?" Because <laughs> that's not going to work for either of you. But um, when he's in the foxhole, I couldn't help but notice that it's like, you know, Willem Dafoe. He's he's wiry. He's wiry. He's, he's very wiry. Strong, he's a strong fella. But damn, he cannot kill this bird. <laughs> this is bird acting, and they have. Uh, if you go to some like behind the scenes stuff, you see him in there like working with the bird. He said it was uh, kind of scary working with the bird because the bird's a real good actor. Oh yeah, and he's in super close quarters with it. But yeah, he's trying to shut this bird up, and it will not fucking die. <laughs> I'm like, come on, man! It's, it's like just bash its head in. But uh, yeah, she does find him, and she digs him out. This. Like, based on the transition of, of the lighting, uh, we're meant to believe this probably took several hours mm-hmm. because we go from, like, kind of daytime to straight-up night. And he passes out, presumably, from pain. Um, and I believe this is where we get to the fourth chapter, uh, chapter four, The Three Beggars. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has dragged his ass back to the cabin. Uh, again, this probably took hours. Yes. Um, but this is where we get the reveal... Where uh, I think this is where they're just laying on the ground together, because he's just yeah. beat to shit. He oh, can't yeah. do anything. Um, but they're kind of like spooning uh, a little bit. But this is where she reveals that uh, she witnessed uh, the child Nick falling from the window, and I th- her tone is—it suggests that she's somewhat remorseful, but at the same time, probably not. Well, it <laughs> sheds light on why she's going through, like why she is so like down in the dumps <laughs> like she's she's really having a, an eeyore time in this um and yeah she's respond like feels responsible because she doesn't even she watches it happen and then just continues having sex yeah pretty yeah. fucking um, brutal. and and again this is I, I think it calls back to that theme of nature where it's like she's slave to her own desires where it's like you know sex feels good and you know she could have she could have kicked him off her and maybe made a move she probably wouldn't have saved the kid but she could have made a move but instead she saw it happen she was like yeah I'll, I'll let him finish <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but yeah she she does express some degree of remorse but her tone is it's just again this this is a person that can just jump in any direction at any time so you don't know what kind of animal you're dealing with at this point um but this is where we get uh the scene that um, was highlighted in a YouTube clip that you sent me where it's a bunch of, uh, I think it's like test audiences or like film festival mm-hmm. goers that are uh, doing like a post-viewing conference with the director himself. Yeah. And they all they all seem to have exactly one topic they all want to zero in on, which is kind of funny because for me, it's such a small part of it. You got to think about, like, you can't push pause. You, you're not in the comfort of your own home. You just sat through this movie and midsection was a little soggy. And then this is how you end the movie. It's like, uh, actually, I remember the first time. I'm like, I forgot that that end scene with with Defoe with the women coming up the the hill. I'm like, this is in this movie because I was still like, <laughs> yeah, she just clipped that thing right off. This is probably one of the most brutal things I've seen in a movie. Um, it she takes some skizzers and she they show her clipping off the uh the old clitoris 
just straight off. And yeah, she starts screaming and blood. It is brutal. Um, it, you can't unsee it. And I knew it was coming. I soon as I kind of looked down for a second, then I saw her set the scissors on the floor. I'm like, oh fuck, I forgot about the scissors. <laughs> I forgot about this part. Yeah, Kyle texted me an emoji of just scissors. <laughs> scissors. <laughs> Late last night, I just got a, a scissors emoji, and I was like, ah. You uh, you rewatched it before the recording, huh? Yeah, I was on the fence. Trevor let me borrow some Steven Seagal movies, and uh, one of those movies is Under Siege. I'm like, oh man, I really want to watch Under Siege, but I'm like, but I need to watch Antichrist. Well, it's it's always going to be there. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, you know, he playing that harmonica. his his that knife getting put into the top of his head. You can come back to it anytime you want. Man, if I hadn't wasted my Postmates on uh, two days ago, I would be getting some Chinese food and watching Under Siege tonight. Oh, that's an evening, right? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, uh, the behind-the-scenes supplements did have a, a a little featurette about the uh, prosthetic uh, pelvis that they manufactured uh, to render this effect. It is it is shown in a very clinical fashion, where like the the angle and the editing is not dramatic. It's just like done, yep. and yeah, uh, we get just like a little of blood and her a primal fucking scream from her. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really really shocking moment. It's I don't know if this has ever been displayed on film before. I don't um, think so. Which makes it unique in that sense. Um, and yes, it is absolutely brutal. And uh, her scream seemingly like serves as like a herald uh, for the three beggars, the mm-hmm. titular three beggars of the chapter heading, uh, which would be the deer, the fox, and uh, the bird of some sort. What do each of um, them? What do they each represent? Because animals often represent some kind of like owls represent wisdom. Um, excuse me. Um, what what do you know what these three represent? Uh, well, I think their placement in the film speaks to them, perhaps uh, symbolizing the the uh, feelings, uh, the grief, the pain, and the despair. Yeah. Um, in some fashion, I, I don't exactly know how that works, um, but. Willem Dafoe at one point remarks that, uh, and he does find like a uh, a star map in her mm-hmm. attic in her study that uh, shows the three animals as constellations, uh, this, as constellations. Like, but he looks up into the night sky and he's like, "These aren't well, const- that's not right. Yeah, these aren't constellations. <laughs> these aren't constellations. <laughs> you know, I'm somewhat of an astronomer myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I." I if I was to guess, it would be something along those lines that they represent these three stages of uh, depression and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so grief, pain, despair. Um, but yeah, uh, their presence in the film is just like kind of like bookends to the chapters, seemingly. Um, but I do think it's fascinating that he is the one that encounters all these animals, um, and like I said, they serve as they seemingly serve as like omens of some sort. Yeah. And he continually, seemingly, just ignores them. Like, I'm sure he acknowledges the, you know, the weight of seeing a stillborn fawn poking out the back of a deer yeah. and a and a fox eating itself and stuff like that. Um, but he seems like he reads as the type of character who compartmentalizes and internalizes a lot of things without really getting into it. Um, so it's it's interesting. I don't exactly know what they mean. Um, but just from a pure visual standpoint, I'm glad they're there because <laughs> uh, they spice things up quite a bit. Yeah, he um, and oh, he, I was gonna say he ends up finding the wrench that she threw underneath because she actually forgets where it's at. Like she goes to the tool shed to find it. And she's like, "Where the fuck's it at?" I couldn't find it. 
and he <laughs> uh, he finds he just kind of has like a like a spidey sense, and uh, he ends up just oh um, he he hears the bird underneath the underneath oh, the wood yes. boards yeah uh, underneath the floor he hears the bird cawing and he like you said he has some sort of spidey sense reaction to it and he uh, Macho Man Randy Savage is mm. the floor with his elbow. Damn, oh, strong yeah. elbow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he finds the wrench and the bird. <laughs> and he ends up getting this off while fighting off. Uh, she's like trying to stab. She does stab him with the scissors. He's basically fighting her off, and he manages to get this thing off of him. And now he is going to dispatch her. <laughs> and did you notice his eyes when this happened? I noticed her eyes, not so much his. <laughs> uh, his eyes are like black while he's doing okay. this. Um, this is I, this isn't one of my favorite death scenes in a movie, not at all. It's one of the most well acted death scenes in a movie I think I've ever seen. Oh yeah, uh, she's got some uh, blood vessels a popping in her forehead that uh, you gotta you gotta strain yourself pretty badly to do that. Um, but what I noticed about her eyes is that. Uh, she had some blood vessels pop mm-hmm. in her eyeballs um, because he is choking her. <laughs> yes, he is choking the life out of her. This is with on both hands. This is on par with like Joe Morton dying in T two. Like this is we somehow like we covered T two and then this movie. I'm like we've got some really realistic deaths, like some very convincing. Yeah, well, we really do deaths. need to revisit cinematic deaths. Yeah, it's been too long, and we seem to be piling piling up, up way of, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we we should figure something out. Um, for another uh, cinematic death. So Just the look that episode alone. up. <laughs> yeah, look that episode up if you haven't heard it before. Um, cinematic death. That's fun. But, that's fun. Um, but yeah, he pins her against the wall after she stabbed him a couple times, and uh, yeah, he chokes her to death. Crushes her trachea too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, this is brutal. I'd be pretty. I'm. I'm not. I'm not justifying the homicide here, but I'd be pretty pissed at this point. I mean, the, yeah, uh, it. It's the kind of situation where, like, it's not the kind of movie where I think anybody sitting on the couch is going to be like, yeah! (laughs) (laughs) Go get her! Get her! Like, no. No. I I don't think it's that kind of experience. Like, I don't think you can strongly rally behind either character. Like I said, honestly, if you really think about it, I think they're both kind of shitty people um, in their own way. Yeah, they're not great. She's, yeah, like, she's kind of a shitty academic, like, literally a shitty academic yeah. he's a fake therapist jolly green um, giants like, the shitty academics <laughs> every Thank episode every episode we work it in um but yeah uh she is dead and uh he he burns her corpse on like a funeral pyre yeah you're not allowed to do that uh, I, yeah that was my reaction maybe it's because the wildfires have been so bad <laughs> But I was like, dude, you can't walk away from that. <laughs> kind of like also with like when I see, when I'm watching a movie, and I see people going to the store, and I'm like, where are you? Where's your fucking mask? I'm like we're in a movie in 2013. We didn't have to do that. Well, I mean, I had a reaction watching Hatchet the other day, where there was a kid at Mardi Gras that like threw a beer cup just in the street, and I was like, don't do that. Like, Find a waste bin. <laughs> Honestly, at Mardi Gras, it's just throw it on the ground. They're gonna I know, have to... <laughs> but you can't, you can't just hold on to it for a minute. Come on. <laughs> fucking asshole. Read your Ranger Rick. But anyway, yeah, he burns her corpse on a funeral pyre. And uh, he, get, he like, fashions himself a crutch of sorts. And uh, he hobbles out of the woods. And we get a uh, callback to her dream sequence of entering the woods as he's exiting. So it's all the same angles for the most part. 
um, just with him in, in her stead. Um, and now that tree that she references several times in the film, I don't know what the significance of that was other than the, the acorns and the life cycle of a tree being kind of a melancholy experience where it takes X number of years for a tree to reproduce. And it's like a, it's a difficult process to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, can't help but think that she was thinking about herself while she was thinking about that. But, um, the same view of him passing by the tree. Now there's a bunch of those pale white feminine arms. And, and I think just a whole bunch of women's bodies piled up all over the place. So something he likes to do is he, uh, it's a big thing in, um, uh, the house that Jack built is there's a lot of illustrations, uh, kind of starting the chapters or just like thrown in into the chapters. It's a, it's a really interesting film. Um, and this was kind of, we kind of get a shot of like, it's like superimposed like we have him walking and then you see it's like a drawing of just women buried underneath the hill basically oh and oh, in, in this one in this in this in this uh scene yeah. um but yeah. yeah as he's exiting the woods like we see all these naked bodies strewn about and um at one point he he finds some berries and he starts munching on them and uh he sees the three beggars all grouped together just kind of looking at them they're not like they're animals they're not projecting emotion of any kind but he gives them an interesting look that's difficult to interpret in fact i would say it's impossible to interpret he doesn't look bummed to be honest <laughs> he's doing fine but he acknowledges them they acknowledge him and then uh, he proceeds on his way out and as he's coming to the hill that they uh, entered the woods via um a huge parade of women mm -hmm. um it looked like they were wearing kind of like antiquated clothing to be honest like it looked like not of that not contemporary clothing basically it might have been mixed a little bit here a little bit there i'm not entirely sure a lot of very feminine clothing a lot of dresses and stuff a lot mm. of stuff that didn't look like things you'd wear in the woods it's well no the faces are all blurred out yes and uh it's very deliberate yeah they all it, it's women's clothing yeah yeah and uh not only that um the faces blurred out happened earlier in the film too during the funeral procession all the uh, people attending the funeral, besides Willem Dafoe, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, uh, they all had blurred faces as well. But yeah, this hundreds of women uh, all ascending the hill that he's coming down from. They don't acknowledge him, uh, and he doesn't seem to acknowledge them. Uh, they all have blurred faces, and I struggle to figure out what this all meant. Um, yeah, did you catch the guy who asked Von Trier about that? I didn't. I don't oh. think I watched that long. What, uh, what did he have to say? So he's like, so I was just wondering, like the last shot we see is all these women coming up the hill, and like, what, what kind of, and like, this film like considered maybe anti-feminist, and uh, like, do you have like, uh, like anti-feminist tendencies? And he's just like, I, I love my wife. Like <laughs> uh, they're like, like what was the point of the hill? And he's just like, I don't know. <laughs> he does. He doesn't. He does not tell you what what it meant. And honestly, like it seems, it it's very. It it seems like he has a very strange way of directing where everything is put on screen deliberately. Everything is done deliberately, and without any explanation, it seems like he doesn't even know exactly what he's putting. And I think that's what makes it an, like an abstract film experience. It's like you know, it's like. Uh, just as a drawer as a fellow drawer like abstract is just kind of whatever you have in your head like what's happening and when you put it to film it's 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 strange to try to grasp like 
trying to figure out what's happening because the artist doesn't even know what they're really doing, it seems like. And this seems like one of those moments. It's just like, you can kind of just project your own meaning onto it because I don't think he had any any real, any admitted meaning behind it. Yeah, I think I think that touches on what we brought up earlier about about the making of the film. And I, I think you're right. I think uh, he has a paradoxical directing style where it's like he is at once intensely deliberate and also very sporadic Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because like you said we had some shots that he was like i want this exactly give me that and then the other department the makeup effects people he was like i know i need this i don't know what i'm gonna do with it but i know i need this um this is like a hundred extras though that it's such a strange thing to put in there like if you have a vision it's like i want all these women these faceless women just climbing this hill and it's like a good 50 to 100 extras doing this I mean, it's just coming to me now, but maybe it, maybe it has something to do, like I said, with the the relationship, the dynamic between men and women, where it's like these people, these this sea of females may as well be unknown unknown to you. Uh, like this, this is the extent to which you can know each of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's just a theme that, for me personally, I couldn't get out of my head the whole time I was watching the movie. It was just like, woman is unknowable, at least for a man. <laughs> I've always, like, there, there are certain celebrities that I'd like, I feel like it'd be fun to meet. Like, I feel like it'd be fun to meet Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I feel like she'd be she'd be fun. Or Stone yeah. Cold Steve Austin seemed like he'd be a yeah. good time. <laughs> Lars von Trier, I just, like, he's, like you said, he's very affable, he's very funny, but... I just don't know if I'd ever want to meet him or have like I feel like having a discussion with him would be so intimidating. I'm like I don't know what to say to this guy. I I mean I think it would be funny because if uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg is to be taken to heart, like he'd probably be equally uncomfortable with you. Mm. <laughs> so maybe you guys would just talk about the Packers. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I actually I think like if you guys didn't talk about his work because. Based on his answers to some of those questions during the, he's post not going to give you shit. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. It's like he strikes me as maybe that kind of artist. That it's like, can we talk about something else? Like I, I made the thing for me. I don't like, know I what don't, I, I was thinking when I made yeah. The movie. It's like it exi- It exists. I know what I felt when I made it, but you know, I have other work to do. I mean, know? this was like an ele- like this. This obviously did not make any money. This was, I think, eleven. Roughly a budget of like eleven million dollars, and it didn't even. I think it made half of that, maybe. <laughs> Three point four million. Oh, and that it, that was the budget, and it made seven point four. So it was oh, what? Well, maybe I, I I was misinformed. But three point four million dollars. Thank God for people like Willem Dafoe who will show up for a three point four million dollar movie every once in a while. He's somebody that we should dedicate a month to because he's got quite a few films that I'd like to. Uh, he is one of the hardest working actors of that caliber. Like, like that man puts in work year round. He's kind of like a Gary Oldman. He's kind of like a chameleon. Like he'll just do any, like anything. He'll do it all. I think he just, I think he just enjoys the process because you know he he does his Spider Mans, he does John Wick, and then he does Antichrist, and then you know he hangs out with Wes Anderson every once in a while. He will do anything. He did fucking Speed too. He'll yeah. do anything as long as he gets to do stuff. Oh, what's that? Uh, he plays Nosfer- the actor who played Nos or Nosferat too. Oh man, that John Malkovich movie! Fre- I can't. Uh, the sh- uh, Max Shrek. Dark. Sh- yeah, he played Max Shrek or something like that. Yeah, that yeah. that where it's like, 
they're on the set of Nosferatu, and he's playing a vampire, but he's actually really a vampire. It, it's yeah, a lot yeah. of fun. Good, good time. Shadow of the Vampire? Shadow of the Vampire. I really like that movie. Um, Florida Project was the one that his more recent films that I've wanted to watch. As long as it's oh, not yeah, Harmony he... Corinne. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, he was up for Oscars for that one. And really? He, he has some others in between that have also gotten critical acclaim. So he, Lighthouse. I he, really liked Lighthouse. I need to see that. Um, and I can see that, so I should. Yeah, it's available to me, so I should watch it. But yeah, it was it was a joy to see Willem Dafoe in this kind of film because he, he will show up no matter what the material. <laughs> I need to he certainly showed up for this. Charlotte Gainsbourg, I think she's in Nymphomaniac Part 2. I think she is like the main character. I think the first one's more about her as a... She plays like the main character. I think the first part is more of her as a young girl, and the second one's more of her as an adult. Um, and she's also in Melancholia, um, which I also need to see. But are you, after this, are you like, are you going to jump into some more Von Trier films? Uh, I'm not going to run out to go see them. Mm. Um, you need to take I've, a break. <laughs> no, I've, I've actually, like, as long as I've been aware of the man, um, probably around the time Antichrist came out. Cause, like, it made you, I saw waves. The, I saw the image and I heard the reputation. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind. Again, I'm not going to run out to go see it. But funny enough, um, I didn't know until you brought it up that uh, there's a depression trilogy. Mm-hmm. Just so happens that of his filmography, all of those movies are the ones that I filed away in my mind as ones I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I may as well complete that trilogy. Um, so Melancholia and uh, Nymphomaniac. One Parts and two. one and two. Yeah. Part two. <laughs> yeah, no, this just solidified my uh, my my fascination with the man. Um, I do plan on going through his entire filmography at some point. I hope he's got something something else in the works. I feel like I don't want him to do like the Kubrick thing. I, eventually, I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch Eyes Wide Shut because as a Kubrick film, it's just like it just is so strange. But also, he didn't direct the whole thing. I think he passed away before it was finished. But I'm like, either Va- Lars von Trier is either going to not make another movie. Or the next one is going to be, like, one of the best. I think probably one of his best, if I had to guess. That's my that's my that's my prediction. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll hold on to that so you can say I told you. Told you. <laughs> I think I think the next one is going to be an experience, and that's the other thing you have to keep in mind with Lars von Trier. You may not necessarily enjoy the film. His films aren't necessarily to be enjoyed; they're to be experienced. That's the difference. They're they're an experience. Yeah, uh, I've only seen the two, but I I have to agree. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess thus draws a close to uh, Kyle's Killer October uh, 2020 edition. Um, so that being said, uh, if you want to check out some of the other uh, catching up on cinema content, uh, feel free to look up our other podcasts on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Um, and feel free to hit us up on the social medias. Uh, we have an Instagram at catchinguponcinema as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. Uh, so feel free to like, share, subscribe, do all that shit. Yep. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for listening, and uh, tune in next time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>